get close to the Hollywood Hills. You know what? That doesn't sound anything like the Bronx at all. <laughs> well, the good news is I don't step outside my door and, and have to deal with crack vials. So at least from where I live, I'm okay right yeah, now. Yeah. I don't you know, I, I step on, uh, on, on hipsters pretty much, you know, in my neighborhood. I was going to say, not yet, uh, I think, not I think, yet, but it's coming. Fuck, I think we're live, we're live right now. I, I can't always get it to the second, so we're maybe uh, 30 seconds early, but we're, we're live right now. Okay, uh, what's up, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you once again for another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm your host. My co-host in all things law enforcement is with me tonight. What's up, Bill Cannon? I'm excited about our guest. You know, we've been picking the West Coast dry of all these famous people, these famous trollers on LinkedIn. You know, we'll get some good guests from the West Coast, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. So without further ado, our guest tonight is a forensic. Uh, he's an L.A.-based uh, criminal, clinical and forensic psychologist and criminolo crimo criminologist. I can't say that word. <laughs> He's worked on over 7,000 cases from adults to youth offenders in California. Please give a warm round of applause to Nadim Kareem. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Nadim, you seem to have a really, really interesting job. Yeah, it's never a dull moment, especially in L.A., Bill. I always tell people that uh, being a forensic psychologist in Los Angeles is like dealing with everything from the drug cartel to the housewives of Beverly Hills and everything in between. That's kind of how we roll down here. You know, it's never a dull moment. My phone is always ringing. And I have to say, it's never the same case twice. So between the insanity cases and competency cases and mental health diversion and substance use and mental state at the time and mitigation and federal cases and state cases. So who, did, who is it that you work for? So basically, my referrals come from the, you know, the Office of the Public Defender, so the defense, the district attorney, so the prosecution, Mark, and also from the bench itself. So I'm on a panel of about 50 psychiatrists and psychologists here in L.A. County. We call it the panel. I think it's a TV show waiting to happen, to be honest, between the stories uh, as far as what the, the 50 of us or so have dealt with. I've been on the panel for over 10 years, and, and that's why, as you said, I've dealt with over 7,000 cases. So to answer your question, you know, it's never a dull moment, and the cases come fast and furious from all sides and all directions. So you got to really keep your head up and make sure that your clinical game is on point. Otherwise, uh, you know, you can drown. Now, you know, are you consulted like in insanity defense cases? Yes. So that's the penal code 1026. Bill, and basically we're asked as experts to opine on whether the individual could understand and appreciate the moral wrongfulness of what they were doing at the time, and also whether they could differentiate between right and wrong, and whether they're malingering or faking or feigning symptoms. So we have to cut through the riffraff and, and really understand whether the case, case merits a report that would support an insanity defense. And I have to tell you my experience, that happens few and far between, I'd say less than 10% of the time. Hey, um, before we started, before we went live, you were mentioning about your education. So you're from Canada. Yeah, from so I was, born, I was born in Africa, in Uganda. Oh, the, wait, the reason why I'm doing the background is because, believe it or not, your occupation is, is uh, 
is a, like, you know, it's all over TV. Right. Everybody's always fascinated. So how does one become a forensic psychologist? Yeah, so you watch Silence of the Lambs and then you get yeah. inspired for rejection. That's basically how, how it happened for me. I was, I was telling you that I was rejected from Cambridge University six times before I got in. But my background is actually, I was born in Uganda and we were not so politely asked to leave the country in 1972 by Idi Amin. Uh, there was an Emmy award-winning movie, uh, Forrest Whitaker played Idi Amin, Mark, uh, on a movie called The Last King of Scotland. Yeah, I watched it. Right, so that's basically our story in a nutshell. So we ended up fleeing for our lives in 72. My parents went from basically being very well off to being poor overnight to being refugees in Canada and never having experienced the winter. And so I grew up uh, initially for a, a short period of time in Montreal, then in Toronto, my parents live in Vancouver. And basically when I was doing my undergrad, you know, I was really, I really wanted to become a criminologist and a forensic psychologist, but I knew that I had to try to get into Cambridge because it's the best institute on the planet. It's actually where the discipline started. And so I just kind of never took no for an answer and just kind of kept grinding and grinding. And finally they said, well, you know, your master's degree isn't good enough. You've got to come here and do another one in England and then we'll reevaluate you. So I went over there in 93 and I did a, a, a master's degree in criminal justice and policing at a school called Reading in England. And then finally Cambridge took me. And as I was telling you, they said, hey, right, um, you're... Your master's degree is not good enough for us, so therefore you need to do another one. And you should do ours, because then we'll see whether you're good enough to stay on for the PhD. Wow. And so finally, after my second master's degree, uh, I think they just felt sorry for me, you know, to be like honest. Year, are you talking about a year and a half over here with another master's degree? Well, yeah, I mean, over in England, it was about solid 12 months. And then the good news was the second master's degree, they were able to use the first year towards the three years of my doctorate. But as I told you, I think I'm the only person in the history of the world to do introductory psychology twice, do worse the second time, and then get a PhD from Cambridge University. So that, that's my claim to fame. Were you in a frat? Is that what happened? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, no, yeah. Famous. By Gamma Delta, all the Fiji boys listening out there. Yeah, yeah. You just imagine go to the grass fair party. I, I could just imagine your family sitting you down after you failed the, uh, <laughs> and they were telling me, listen, this is your only, I, I don't want to do the accent because I can't, but this is yeah. your shot. You're blowing it, kid. That's right. My mother would say to me, she said, you know, we didn't raise you like this. You know, you need to like get it together. What are you doing? Like we are wasting a lot of time on you. Look, do, do like your sister so smart. Why are you raising my blood pressure? You know, I have such hard blood. Oh. So then finally, now my mom goes and tells the ladies at her club that, you know, my, my son is a doctor now, you know, he goes to the jail, but it's okay, he gets to leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the famous Yankee owner, George Steinbrenner said, I only got C's and D's in, in the college. He goes, those are the people you gotta watch out for because <laughs> he became a billionaire, right? That's right. He got C's and D's, so. God bless him. Yeah, but you know what, though? I'm looking over here, right? And the Department of Labor reports that the average salary of a forensic psychologist was 65000 So I'm guessing you get a lot of overtime. 
Yeah, well, luckily I'm self-employed, so you know, oh, you <laughs> I do okay, thankfully. He's not working for the government. He's a guy's driving Ferraris and Porsches. LinkedIn. <laughs> He's not making a civil service yeah. salary. Yeah, trust me, they're all used cars. They're all used cars, Bill. Don't it's don't believe true. the hype. <laughs> now now you I know why you wanted pony. to go to Cambridge. That's right. Yeah, my daughter, for her sins, is an equestrian uh, jumper and is costing us a fortune. And she just uh, fell on her tailbone the other day. So she, I mean, talk about blood pressure. Mine is through the roof. But I guess she's like her dad, you know, guys, because she's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So God bless her, too, because she's having a good time uh, jumping over, you know, four foot rails on this incredible horse. So I was like, really? Don't you want to play golf or tennis or soccer? You had to pick this sport, really? Are you, are you serious? Dean, don't tell me you play polo. If you play polo, <laughs> you have the show right now. Absolutely not. No, no. Uh, I knew some guys that did, but I never, never did. I'm too scared. I think you need like 50 or 60,000 a year just to take care of your horse. To play right, especially when you need four polo ponies for each right. game of polo. I mean, give me a break. Who does that? Pocahontas is tired. Give me the other horse. <laughs> When you said um, adrenaline junkie, uh, were you referring to the fact that you have to go in there and sit down next to like uh, probably somebody who's committed a murder? Yeah, you know, I think in part it is that. How do you get, do you get psyched up for that? Yeah, initially I think it was just because I like to drive fast, but to be honest, you know, I had to do a career mark that would challenge me. And when I saw Silence of the Lambs, I was like, wow, like what, what is the difference between a guy like me and Hannibal Lecter? You know, like what gets him to where he is and, and gets me on the other side to be evaluating him. And certainly that's an extreme example. But every day when I'm going into jail and I'm dealing with shot callers in the, in the, in the mafia and the gang, MS-13, 18th Street, uh, right across the board, you know, you're always trying to, to almost get to a point where you can establish credibility right away. It's almost like you have to be the ultimate salesperson to be able to let them know that it's not so much that you're on their side, but you're gonna give them a fair, fair shake and you're gonna evaluate them fairly. And if you can help them, you may be able to help them at least if they have in fact a legitimate bona fide mental health issue. And so that's the challenge for me. That's why I gotta get out of bed in the morning, Mark, is to be able to challenge myself to see you know, if I can get in face to face with these guys that have done, and, and women that have done some gruesome things and try to get them on my side quickly so I at least can tell their story in a humanistic way. Hey, um, do you have a, a, a way you like the room set up before you go in? Do you peek in there and say, no, I want this over there and I want that over there? And is there a guard in there with you? <laughs> Usually I have a guard with me, but it's not like Mindhunter where they make sure that the window is, is completely directly behind you for the camera shot. It's, it's basically, you know, come as you go. You know, you could uh -huh. be doing an evaluation screaming through a door in the jail because the guy just doesn't want to come out and he's his, his cell is just filthy and you know he's paranoid and he's not going to talk to you unless it's through the little crack in the in the door so you know I, I i take it as it comes and you know remember this has to be voluntary can't force anyone to do an evaluation so they have to kind of meet us halfway and so in that context I, i've done evals in in the basement of prisons uh like i said through cracks the doors and whatever I can get, as long as I know that uh, it's con consensual is involuntary and that it's, uh, it's something that can be used to try and help the individual if that's the case. So how do you establish rapport, say with a 22 year old gangbanger? 
Well, I, I think the good news is I speak Spanish. So, you know, a lot of the gangbangers I see in town, many of them may have come just from El Salvador. Uh, many of them don't speak English, not all, but but many. And so, you know, I, I think I look Latino, even though I'm Indian, South Asian. So I, I try to kind of tell him at the start, like, hey, look, you know, I speak Spanish. I'm going to meet you halfway. I'm going to speak to you in your language. It's not perfect. But if you bear with me, you know, I'm going to retreat you with respect. Right. And, and it's just like anything else, you know, you, you meet someone with respect and if they buy into that, Bill, and as you know, as in, in terms of your years of law enforcement, I'm sure when, you, when you've met that criminal on the street and you don't know whether they're going to cooperate or not, if you're trying to arrest them, you have to set, you know, down your guidelines pretty quickly in terms of what you will and will not accept. They would say, I want to be treated and respected like a man. That's right. That's right. And so that's what we try to do. And, and for the most part, I just try to tell them, look, I don't know if I can help you. I'm not going to BS you. But at the end of the day, I'm good at what I do. I'm a good writer and I'm good at telling stories. So if you, if you feel comfortable enough to tell me your story, I will promise you one thing. And that is, I'll make sure that the judge and the prosecutor know who you really are, not what all these tattoos on your face and the MS on your, you know, uh, on your arms and chest and all this stuff that you're trying to portray, that, that's not the person that I want them to know. Obviously you got there for a reason and you joined the gang for a reason, but I, I want to tell your true story. So at least whatever sentence you get or punishment, uh, they'll make an informed decision. Huh. That's crazy. I mean, how, how with, with a lot of these decisions where they parole murderers these days, are you one of the ones that are saying, no, this guy's a bad risk for parole or no, he's a good risk or, you know, especially we've been seeing in New York, they've been paroling cop killers, which people are just, and the people in the law enforcement world are just living over that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And now with COVID, you know, they're trying to decrease the numbers in the jail and they're letting out guys who have committed violent offenses and women who have committed violent offenses early. Right. And that's a concern. We all, want the, we all want the prison population and the jail population uh, to be safe and the staff th that work in there every day. But at the same time, we also need to make sure we're protecting the community. And the, the dichotomy between public safety and just incarceration is something that you know I, I'm looking at. And to answer your question, Bill, what I'm trying to do is write mental health diversion reports so that individuals, even if they have committed serious crimes, there's a new penal code that came out in January. Uh, it's PC 1001.36, it's called mental health diversion. If the individual had a mental health issue that significantly contributed to the commission of the crime, then they have an opportunity to receive diversion, in which case the actual case could come off their record. Now that doesn't happen with violent criminals a lot. I've, I've rarely seen it. But it does happen. And I think in that case, it's better to get someone that's mentally ill out of a warehoused jail situation and get them into treatment for their substance use disorder or whatever it was that made them commit the crime that they don't remember instead of just warehousing them in jail. Except, if, them if, free. If, except if they pitch a tent right in front of your house. Right, right. And then, so that's the dilemma, right? I mean, do you warehouse them in jail, Bill, or do you yeah. actually provide them with treatment? so that they're not gonna recidivate. And one of the things I write in my report a lot, uh, Mark and Bill, is that you know this individual's risk of recidivism is directly tied to their motivation to participate in treatment. 
especially if they have a dual diagnosis, like a drug problem and, a, and an underlying mental health issue. So there's two co-occurring dual diagnosis issues happening at the same time. And we can't neglect one because one is self-medicating the other. And so that, that's what I try to do is, is, is delineate and highlight what the salient mental health issues are so that the individual can get the treatment that they need. So hopefully they're not bill pitching a tent in front of your house. Yeah. Well, let me ask, let's take a famous case, all right? Um, let's take Vinny the Chin. You, you, that, that, you definitely know him. Um, he, how would you have dealt with him? Well, who, don't, who never doesn't know, he was a famous New York City mobster. Uh, I think his name was Gigante, the last name, but he, was, uh, he used to walk around downtown in Manhattan uh, in a bathrobe and his slippers, and, like, you know, like a mental patient. And uh, a lot of people think it was an act because he used to go back and, you know, he was the head of a family and he used to conduct business. Uh, I would imagine that's what they said. But during the day, you could see him walking around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe, a hat, uh, slippers, looking dis very, very disheveled, disoriented. And that's the pictures that they used to, the FBI used to take of him. So now you're the forensic psychologist on this case. What do you do with this guy? Yeah, it's genius, right? So he figures out a way to try to manipulate law enforcement and portray himself as being mentally ill when in fact he's not. He knows it's in his best interest to portray himself in that manner because he realizes that the consequence, if he's actual rational insane, is he's going down. And so the way that I would deal with it, like I would in any other case, is sit him down and just talk to him. If he's able to report his history without difficulty, and we actually have malingering test mark where I could determine whether he's lying or faking or being defensive. And so through the process of evaluation and the testing, I could pretty much, I give it a nine out of 10 factor now, maybe not back then. Uh, I'm not sure how sophisticated the evaluation process was back in the day, but I saw something similar on Godfather of Harlem. Um, you know, same kind of situation where guy's a mob boss, he, you know, he knows he's going down, he dresses up like Vinny and, you know, he gets away with it for the most part. So the way that I would deal with it is just very, very systematic and, and spend, you know, four or five sessions with a guy to see if they're exaggerating or feigning mental illness. For example, uh, most people that are mentally ill, particularly schizophrenic, they're not gonna tell you they hear voices. I mean, you would think that they would because we are, our impression of people that are schizophrenic or psychotic or severely mentally ill is that they're invaded by the stimuli. But in a real life case, the individual is so mentally ill that they lack insight into their mental illness. They lack insight to the fact that they're hearing voices and in fact, they're gonna deny it. So I'm actually looking for Vinny to say, there's nothing wrong with me. More so than I'm asking him uh, to say that, wow, you know, I've got all these 85 things going on and there's aliens in my head and I'm, you know, all of that stuff. Th those are telltale signs that he's malingering. Absolutely. Yeah, but what, what about somebody who actually has, like, let's say you take somebody who has severe OCD. So you okay? This person definitely has uh, some uh, mental problem, but now is that mental problem responsible or have anything to do with, you know, this murder or this uh, uh, you know pattern of behavior where they're a criminal? Do you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. the reality is, or you could have somebody who's bipolar, you know, manic, has episodes, but. Is that contribute because they have that mental illness? Does that contribute uh, to their crime, their criminal you know, lifestyle? It's a great question. 
And, and you know, the answer to that, in my opinion, is the fact that there's a lot of mentally ill people out there that don't commit crime. And so just because you're mentally ill doesn't mean that you have uh, an underlying uh, defense for a crime that you may have committed. And, and so that's where we come in. Our job is to tease out whether if the, first of all, number one, is the individual really mentally ill? Or are they faking, malingering, exaggerating, feigning symptoms? And then number two, if they do have a legitimate bona fide mental illness, did that mental illness significantly contribute to the commission of the crime? And so that's where an individual, for example, that's OCD, like you said, Mark, well, obsessions are thoughts, compulsions are actions, but that doesn't mean that the obsessive compulsiveness or the OCD led to the murder. I mean, okay, it might be mitigating that they have this underlying mental health issue, but you know, if the individual is bipolar and they're manic and they're you know, self-medicating with amphetamine and they're experiencing a drug-induced psychosis and then they commit a murder, I think you have a little bit more on your plate as an evaluator in terms of trying to explain what happened as opposed to just saying, well, the individual got treated for OCD or for ADHD or what have you. And, and you know, you try to connect the dots. It's just too difficult. Right. Yeah, I, go ahead, Bill. No, I wanted to ask you, do you think too much is asked of the police in regards to dealing with mentally ill people? Well, I, I think there's two sides to that. And I had a conversation with a mentor by the name of Joe Brand, who was the, he was the independent uh, cops office administrator in DC. And he, he's mentored me over the years. And one of the things that he told me that I've always remembered, Bill, is that if you're in law enforcement, he was a police chief a couple of times over before he became a law enforcement consultant. He, he said to me that you always want to try to be an agent of change in people's lives as a law enforcement agent, right? You want to uphold the law. If you have an opportunity to be an agent of change, then you know you, you should do that. Now, there's programs and forces out there that have tried to amalgamate the role of a police officer to a social worker. Right. And people have, people have differing opinions on that. And most police officers, in my opinion, don't join the force to do social work. However, in my opinion, at least understanding and having training on various mental health issues and how to deal with an individual that's mentally ill when you're in the process of upholding the law is incredibly important in my opinion. And I'll tell you why. I can't tell you any hundreds of cases I've seen, Bill, where the individual is mentally ill and, the, and ends up with a resist officer, delay or obstruct, because you know the officer's new on the force. I won't say they don't have the skills to deal with mentally ill, but I think that as much knowledge, training, uh, and ability that they could have to be able to respond, maybe with a mental health unit who can actually do the de-escalation is right. incredibly important. Not only is it gonna decrease charges in my opinion, Bill, but it's gonna save lives um, because you have individuals that when the police first approached them, like I had a case where uh, recently an LAPD officer told me that, you know, this guy was standing on a bridge waiting to commit suicide and he walked up to him and he had been there for 30 minutes and the officer tried to talk him down and, you know, de-escalate, did the best he could. But what he ended up telling me, the officer was that, I think this, this guy just wanted to see someone before he jumped and there was nothing I could do. Right. So in some cases, it doesn't matter how much training you have, you know, it, you're not going to be able to help. But my, my response directly is if you have the ability, the knowledge and the framework and the structure and the support to be able to both police and be knowledgeable with regard to 
salient mental health issues, I think it would be helpful as a law enforcement officer for sure. I just think they ask uh, cops to, to do a little bit too much relative to that. Right. And, you know, a lot of times in New York City, our role with someone we, you know, called an EDP was to get them to the hospital where they could get evaluated. And it was a whole procedure in doing that, you know. But it, sometimes it ended up bad where, uh, you know, the EDP became violent and deadly physical force was used in a few instances. And that never looks good, you know. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing, Mark, Mark and Bill, is that, you know, ask yourself, Bill, why did you become a police officer? You know, wh what made you become an officer and, and take that oath? And, and that's something I'd be interested to know. And secondly, uh, the idea of a police officer being involved hand in hand in the treatment of an individual, say, for example, who's a substance user, is also interesting to me because we see it. We see, was well, that really the role of the police officer to be taking this individual to their treatment sessions, to their right. therapy yeah. sessions? Is that what community policing is? Is there a value to that? Does it work? And so I have seen cases where it does, but I've also seen cases where there's a, 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 a level of ambivalence in terms of, wait a second, this is not what I signed up for. Right. Yeah, we, had, we had a homeless outreach um, that worked in transit system for all the homeless people that were in transit, uh, you know, living in, in the subway system. And they just disbanded it. And uh, it was a sad day. Those people did a lot of, uh, you know, because you might not know how to be a social worker initially, like you said, uh, but after you, if you've been in that unit for a number of years, you know what the protocol is, you know how to get this person where they want to go with care, you know how to talk to them. So you become an expert at it in a way. And they just disbanded that unit. <laughs> yeah, Let me ask you a question, um, since you're an expert in this. What's the best, uh, what's the best type of straitjacket to get? <laughs> <laughs> the one you're using now. <laughs> the one you should be using now. The one with the zipper on the back? <laughs> they were like uh like the one of the, uh, the <laughs> yeah well you know i just got a, a mask uh to go into the jail because that's the other issue right we're going into jails and prisons and I'm, I'm trying to avoid it and do most of my work by video conference but i had my wife uh order a mask for me and it, i i don't like i'm like is this a mask or am i going to be playing goalie for the <laughs> range like what is this you know it's the state of affairs right now so uh, and incidentally, my wife is actually a social worker. She was the Los Angeles County uh, Deputy Director for the Department of Mental Health. She ran the largest mental health agency in the country, at least for children. And one of the things that, you know, I wanted to, the reason I mentioned it is because she's always reminding me of my faults and my errors. And so you just said, Mark, I'm an expert. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of difficult for me to swallow because that means I know a lot about something. And I always tell people, I know a lot about very little, uh, right? And so she always tells me, well, did you ask them about their family history of mental health treatment? Did you do a gene? And I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> like, wow, there's a lot of social work involved in what I do too. If, if I really want to get the story, then I have to put on different hats and make sure that I'm being, you know, thorough in the way that I go about doing these evaluations. You know, I just thought of a great plot for a movie. Right? Tell the, me. Guy, the guy, he's bipolar manic he has he's has past episodes he wants to kill his wife so he fakes he's in a manic episode kills her and then he's going to use that defense uh that he was just in a in an episode 
Because oh, yeah. he knows the symptoms. He knows what. Yeah. I mean, the movie I mean, right there, right? Sounds like your next episode is of CSI or Law and Order. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think another interesting television show, it's like, it was always like what hasn't been done, right? And I've consulted on a few, uh, you know, in a, in a very limited capacity with some writers here in town because it's LA, it's Hollywood, it's all around you. And, and I think what would be interesting is if you remember Law and Order and LA Law back in the day, right? Uh, you look like you're 25, Mark. How old are you? <laughs> 53. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm 50, so we both remember LA Law. And, and Bill, you don't look a day over. Well, no, I'm, 30. I'm 63. Are you a good-looking 63? <laughs> let me tell you. For those of you who can't see uh, Bill and Mark, I'm dealing with two handsome guys here. Yeah, yeah the camera's nice to you. Well, we're beaten down inside, though. <laughs> <laughs> we look good outside, but we're, we're, inside our soul is just. Yeah, my, my liver is not doing so good right <laughs> I got a 95-year-old liver. Nadim, you know what I wanted to ask you, too? A lot, of, a lot of cops and a lot of people in the criminal justice field were very concerned about this right now. And that's, you have it right on your profile, alternatives to incarceration. Because we're not convinced that that works. Yeah. When someone gets locked up for a felony and they get convicted after a trial or they plead guilty, we expect them to do their time. And when they're put back in the community, we're not confident that we want to live among these convicted felons or these parolees that may have been paroled earlier. I mean, in New York City, parolees have done some heinous crimes while out on parole, you know? So that's one of the things and I think even now when you see, especially because of COVID, they emptied the jails and they emptied a lot of the prisons, worrying about these guys getting sick in prison. Most people, are more worried about them coming out into society than they are about them dying in prison of uh, COVID-19. Agreed. And I, and I would respond to that in agreement with you, Bill. You know, um, I think that there are certain people that should not be out in the community, period. They're dangerous. They're violent. And I don't want them living beside me. You no. know, I don't, I don't want them anywhere around my 13-year-old child especially given you know, the, the number of violent people I see on a daily basis in the jails and the prisons. When I talk about alternative you know, to incarceration, what I'm referring to is what I had alluded to earlier, which is if we warehouse people in prison and jail without addressing their <laughs> mental health needs, perhaps not for an individual that would be a dangerous again, because that's also one of the criteria that we're asked to address. Are they at risk to commit another violent felony? And most of the time, if they're violent and they have a rap sheet, I'm calling the lawyer saying, why did you refer this case to me? Do you realize that your client has two prior strikes? I'm not signing off on this. You got to be kidding me. So having said that, what I'm referring to is the opportunity for individuals to get treatment. And a lot of times it is these dual diagnosis cases uh, where individuals are committing crime they don't even remember. I mean, I just wrote one yesterday and and the guy was like, well... You know, I don't think I have a problem. I'm like, really? You don't think you have a problem? You stab somebody. <laughs> and they're like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I, yeah, I did. I'm like, and you don't remember. And they're like, uh, no, I don't. And I'm like, well, don't you think that's a problem? Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? The brass do you have liability? Nadim, do you have liability where, say, you make the wrong call and someone goes out there and kills somebody? Are you at all liable for that in any way? 
Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, in, a, in the civil realm, anything's possible in the land of litigation in these wonderful United States of America. I mean, you know, no one's no one's completely impermanent. Too many lawyers, that's the problem, you know? I got to tell you, though, I was sued by someone I never met. I've only been sued once, and that was from someone I never met. I came home, and my wife said, oh, there's a, do you remember this guy? And I was like, what? And I read the letter, and uh, it was a guy that sued me and Eric Holder and Sheriff the sheriff of LA and the court reporter and the court stenographer and anybody that was in five mile radius of the courtroom. <laughs> and I was asked to do a competency evaluation to determine whether or not he was competent to stand trial. Yeah. And he agreed to meet with me. He never showed up. The judge asked me to write a report based on the records, but I ultimately opined, Bill, that I could not, in fact, render an opinion on competency because I never met with a guy. And I still ended up retaining a lawyer to defend me with the board and said, look, I never even met this guy. But I mean, yeah, I, I do have liability insurance. I think it's one to three million. And that's st standard operating uh, protocol for, for us these days. Oh, it's just like a regular uh, MD has to have, you know, malpractice insurance, right? Exactly. I'm not saying what you do is malpractice, but you can make a mistake, right? <laughs> well, we're, pra we're practicing. I mean, yeah. we're it's a, it's a conjunctive verb, so we're, we're doing our best. It's fluid. Any high-profile guys that you could share, person that, that... I mean, yeah, you know, you know, rappers and celebrities and, you know, people that, you know, have high-profile uh, children, and, you know, I mean, you see it all. I mean, I've, I've been able to work with some of the top attorneys in town. Uh, again, I think they just feel sorry for me, so they give me cases, but you know, after a while, they like, you know, they, I guess I kind of charm them or something. I, I just, I try to, to write reports that are credible and objective. And, and, and like I said, you know, try to tell the story. And so, yeah, I have been able to work on some cases before marijuana was legal. I had a lot of weed cases, you know, mm -hmm. self-medicating again, underlying anxiety, which I see a lot, like people don't want to take medication because they don't want to get hooked on it. So they'd rather smoke weed again before it was illegal, before it's legal. Um, they'd rather smoke weed than, you know, than take their medication. And so that, that creates a whole series of other issues uh, based on them getting DUI and, you know, uh, being disorderly in public and things like that and picking up a bunch of misdemeanors and or in some cases felonies. The Dave, I got a great uh, little topic here. There's a push from academia and a lot of people that think they're smart to make pedophilia not a crime, to make it like a psychological, not even a psychological, like it's normal. And to me, that's that's very scary. You know, I think that anyone that has sex with a child, that should be treated as a criminal matter. And know? not only that, Bill, but anyone that has intense, arousing fantasies about a prepubescent child. And remember, prepubescent means age 13 or under. Right. And if you're 13 to 17, then that's considered hebophilia, right? That's the other term. But I can't tell you, I've worked on about 500 cases and I can't do them anymore. I've just stopped. I've told attorneys, yeah, I speak Spanish and, you know, it's good to have a consistent referral base, but especially when you're self employed. But I'm not doing these cases anymore because when you have these individuals that feel that there's nothing wrong with inflicting themselves on an innocent child 
that's where I draw the line. I just can't stomach it. But, but Nadim, there's people in academia, some of your colleagues that think it's perfectly okay. I mean, I just don't know where they get these people. Someone from Rutgers University <laughs> a couple of years ago wrote a big paper on this, on how it should not be a crime. It's very natural. You know, the ancient Romans, you know, like, are you kidding me? Where'd you get that from? You know? Yeah, I wouldn't consider them a colleague of mine uh, because I, I think that if they look at the clinic, even the just let's talk about research and clinical criteria. If you look, I thought you were almost going to say Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go on a Bill Clinton rant. <laughs> if, if you look at the clinical criteria for Bill Clinton, no, I'm just kidding. If you look at the <laughs> clinical criteria uh, of pedophilia, then what you find is this language, which is you know intensely arousing sexual fantasies about a prepubescent child and the individual has an impulse control disorder in that regard. So can you imagine individuals that can't control their impulses and have to inflict themselves on an innocent child? It's absolutely 100% in my opinion, outrageous. And it really does require significant treatment. That's one of those situations where, you know, there's a psychiatric hospital a few hours down the road in Fresno called Koalinga. And I've seen a few sex offenders in there and they need to stay there because they have yet to develop insight, perhaps like some of these individuals that you're referring to in academia, they have yet to develop insight into the harm done to the, the victims. And, and the same applies to child pornography. Uh, there's a new, there's a new uh, test that's come out called the C-Port, uh, C-P-O-R-T. And it talks about whether an individual who views child pornography is at risk to recidivate and a danger to the victims in the community. And my response to that is, well, the, those children are, are innocent victims, number one. And number two, I've had many people tell me, well, I didn't think I was you know, doing anything wrong. I was just looking at photos. I wasn't trying to meet anybody for the purpose of sexual gratification. And the bottom line is they lack insight into the harm done to the victims. And they're okay to just continue to download these items and share these items and and, and operate in what they think is oblivion until the feds, you know, and the, and the cops come and knock their door down at 5 a.m. and rightfully so. Right, right. Is there anyone, is there treatment to reverse someone who's a pedophile? Yeah, well, that's again, another very, very interesting and loaded question. Is, uh, it, I don't a, know is I, it a nine millimeter round? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if I have the expertise to answer that, honestly, but I, I will tell you that there is a thing called a victim offender cycle where individuals who have been past victims of sexual abuse then inflict themselves you know, on the innocent child. And a lot of times they're trying to make sense of their own past trauma. Unfortunately, there's another victim involved and many times it's someone that they groom uh, and then inflict themselves on. So for individuals like that, sure, you, know, you really need to get that individual's head around why he or she you know, in this type of behavior, but also press rewind and go back to the PTSD and the trauma that resulted in, in their own pain in the first place. Well, how about even priests? The priests that are, are pedophiles, do they go into that business because they're afraid or ashamed of themselves and they think they can hide in this profession and not be found out? Well, Mark, what do you think? I mean, predatory grooming is a word that I, I write a lot. And when it comes to individuals that inflict themselves you know, on these innocent children and use their position of authority to do so. And especially when you hear cases of, well, my mom was just in the other room and I was sitting on the couch with the priest 
And I didn't think, you know, I was doing anything wrong because the priest was telling me to, to do it. And that is what God wanted me to do. Well, I, mean, I was thinking about that uh, predatory and the power. And I was thinking about if, you know, like, you know, let's just take uh, Jeffrey Epstein, for example. You're, you know, his, his defense attorney right now, let's say he doesn't kill himself. He's alive. His defense attorney is going to come to you and tell you, Jeffrey's got a big problem. He's insane. He can't control this behavior. He doesn't belong in prison. He belongs somewhere where he can get treatment. Now, what, what, what are you, what's the protocol, right? What are you going to do right now? Yeah, well, I don't think he will qualify with respect, you know, Mark, with an insanity defense. Uh, you know, his as much as his defense attorney might be crafted enough to say that he couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of his acts and he, he couldn't determine right from wrong. Well, uh, I think, uh, uh, could I play devil, devil's advocate? Please. My client is one of the best businessmen in the world. Right. He has a compulsion that he cannot control. He was willing to give up everything, all his fortune and everything, because he could not control this compulsion. And this compulsion is a mental illness, according to the law. Right. And so, so he got something wrong with him. He's insane. Well, hang Who on. Else do this. Okay. So just, just to respond, I would say that it's not that he's insane. He's sexually deviant. And there is a difference. He's unable to control his impulses and delay sexual gratification, not just once, but over a period of years and has inflicted himself on multiple people while running a very successful business, which is a complete opposite of insanity. In but he's sitting there telling you there's nothing wrong with him. Well, that's the job of the defense attorney. And you know what? I accept their role for what it is. We all have a job to do. I just don't think it would fly in court, in my I, opinion. No, I'm just, you know, it's, it's a fascinating argument to make. You know, I always wanted to <laughs> be a lawyer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> No, Nadine, you mentioned before, and, I, and this is very familiar to anyone that's worked in law enforcement, is that a lot of childhood victims of sexual abuse, they become the predators when they get older. The, the abused become the abuser, and they become criminal. And one other thing I'd like to add, I, I was in homicide my last 10 years, and in the same office with us, right across the hall, was special victims. So I was a boss, so sometimes I would supervise special victims and I went out on some of their like horrendous, horrendous cases, you know? And I always respected the hell out of special victims detectives because I just thought it was such a very, very difficult crime to investigate. And they were so good and so professional in, in the way that they investigated it. But what I used to see a lot was that a lot of sex crimes involved family members. And specifically, you mentioned you speak Spanish. A lot of Hispanic people have extended family living in the same household. And that causes huge, huge problems. Where, you know, the uncle started having sex with the, the, the daughter, you know, when she was 12 years old, you know, and the daughter doesn't say anything because she's ashamed and all that other stuff. But things like that are just horrendous. Especially if the uncle is running the household and paying the bills. Right. And, and they're undocumented. What, what happens to that little girl and her mom and her brother if she says anything? And he's telling her, if you say something, I'm going to get in trouble and you're going to have to go back to Mexico or El Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala or wherever. So you must uncover that these type of cases all the time. 100 percent. Yeah, there, there is an issue for sure in relation to family members inflicting themselves on you know younger family members, an uncle, on a child, 
a grandparent, grandfather on a child I've seen many, many times. And, you know, the idea of showing affection versus of infliction or affliction uh, is, is not a fine line. It's, it's very black and white. And yet the perpetrator, the predator feels that, oh, it's just one way of showing my love, quote unquote, uh, to my granddaughter or to my niece. And right. that's, how, that's how they justify their behavior. So since we're on this subject, you know, and then we're talking about that um, Lolita Island and all the uh, the younger, um, you know, it's a, there's so much talk about this right now, this, these uh, sex traffickers and underage girls and stuff like that. And it seems to be like, you know, obviously it's a conspiracy theory, but all the names that were people really going there uh, for the pur pur purpose of these wild parties with the idea idea that maybe there might be some younger age girls and is there a community of these people that are all successful and and have like you know like what do you think i mean what do you really think that this is possible that there's all these adults that enjoy having sex with children and now they they form this bond and they have the, they they throw these parties and stuff well again you know an individual's propensity to have different you know sexual interests is certainly wide and pervasive and I'm not trying to be diplomatic in my response. I'm just saying that I think anything is possible. And I think there's a lot more going out there than perhaps you know, we come to learn until cases like you know, Epstein come along where you're like, wow, this was happening? Like, yeah, this is happening. And it's happening right in front of us. And so again, I would always go back to the, the issue of an individual's uh, sexual desires, their sexual impulses, and their sexual propensities in terms of, you know, people enjoy doing different types of things and, and certainly uh, may have different types of sexual interests. But when it, when, you, when it comes to infliction and when it comes to a point where an individual is acting in a manner that is uh, illegal, unjustified and results in harm, then I think that's where we have to definitely draw the line. Nadim, uh, someone from our audience wanted to ask you a question about serial sex offenders. Uh, is, is there any hope with turning around their behavior? I know that there's been, um, they actually civilly commit some of these sexual offenders once they've done their sentence because they don't trust that they'll go out into the community and not keep offending. So they'll yeah. civilly commit them in a mental institution. Absolutely. You know, I've seen it. You know, I, I had a sex offender case. Serious sex offender was a younger guy. Uh, he was trying to get his car uh, well, get, get the scrapping. So he was trying to get it, uh, um, I guess, he went to the wrecking yard to get the money and, and they found his computer in the trunk in the long, short story long. And, you know, they ended up finding images on this computer. And Was there a picture of Anthony Weiner on his computer? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I think there was emails between him and, and Epstein. And Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the short version of that story is that even when he was in jail, he was continuing to draw, you know, these pornographic images on tissues, on anything that he could find on paper. He was asking for a pen and a pencil and the guards would give it to him and he would end up drawing these very provocative uh, sexual images, in including one of a woman that was pregnant. And it, you know, came to light in court and it was just like, wow, I mean, there, there's just no helping this young man, unfortunately. And to answer your question and to the viewer, there are a lot of cases where we see 
that because of the lack of insight, because of the sexual impulse control disorder, and because of the inability to delay sexual gratification, that particular individual, unfortunately, is beyond treatment. Hey, uh, <laughs> I had two things for you. Um, well, that movie, there's a movie about what you said about uh, the guy who used to, uh, what was it? The movie was called Quills. And it was about the, uh, I guess, was he French? He used to write the sexual novels. But then at yeah. the end, he started writing um, in blood on his bed sheets to get the stories out. It was like underground porn. I remember that movie. You're, you're dating yourself there, Mark. You're going back to the 80s, I think. <laughs> Great movie. What are you oh, watching so on what Netflix? I wanted to tell you was... Uh, <laughs> We're going to psychoanalyze what Mark is watching on Netflix. That's right. <laughs> what I wanted to tell we you may, was, We uh, may have to simulate no. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> when, I was a, when I was a cop uh, and I was in the Warren squad, you know, you'd always be, uh, you know, having to visit people's apartments and stuff. And I had this... Um, this thing that my partner always used to, he, he told me that I, I say that a lot. You know, every time I walk in, I look around and be like, how do people live like this? You know? <laughs> so I'm sure that, you know, being a, you know, one of your things, that since you're a, a psychiatrist, you know what I'm saying? A psychologist, you know, you probably got to talking to people and how many times a day you go, this, guy, this fucking person is crazy, man. <laughs> What's even more, I think, disturbing, I'll be very honest here, for me is that I always am asking myself, what is the difference between me and this person? I mean, there's two sides of that coin. And what, what you know, went differently in my life to put me on this side of the, of the window or this side of the telephone rather than on the other side? Or you and could I, have been on Jeffrey Epstein's plane going to that. <laughs> here. God, God forbid. But, but well, I think that there is that humanistic side of empathy that you have to have in this job to be able to appreciate that, but for the support family and you know the the the, the desire to pursue a, an education and you know do things because there's professionals that commit these crimes as well. Let's not kid ourselves. We know oh. this. Um, look at what happened at the University of Michigan, and you know what happened with the U.S. gymnastics team. Right. I mean, right. You know, you have a medical doctor who inflicted himself and then tried to rationalize his behavior as as performing medical procedures. I mean, it was the height of absurdity. Right. So, so to answer your question, Mark, yeah, I shake my head all the time going, wow, <laughs> I thought I heard everything, but- I, I didn't really mean at work so much. I meant just like outside of work, like just hanging out like, oh, this guy's fucking nuts. <laughs> How long you been married? <laughs> Jerry Sandusky from Penn State. Right, yeah. right. Well, uh, you know, for, for me, I always tell people I'm only good with criminals, so. You know, you talk about my, my, my wife laughs at my dating history. She's like, really? Didn't you realize that she was a psychopath? Like, what was no, that? That's what I was going to ask. What were you doing dating her, Nadine? What <laughs> were you thinking? Your Did wife you said that you have to suggest I knew it. I realized it. And that's why I fell in love with you. Right. Exactly. Thank you, Bill. And also, <laughs> remember, she still wants to poke my eyes out. So just we've said that for the record. I'm sure she'll watch this, hopefully, and get a chuckle out of it. <laughs> Did you ever girl, um, uh, date a girl who was sane? <laughs> uh -oh. I'm not touching that one. I am not touching that one. Pleading the fifth. You know what, what, I, what I wanted to ask you, and it, this applies to you as well as us. I think anyone that's done, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years on, on a police department has a level of PTSD. You definitely have seen so much heinous shit in your life. I think you have PTSD. And this goes for you too. 
you're dealing with people that are just not, you know, they're not in the realm of normalcy. And you're going into that world. You know, you're, you're digging deep into their mind, into that world. It has to affect you too. Well, yeah. there's a, well, go ahead, Mark. No, there's a female cop who just, uh, re, she's suing the NYPD because she says uh, they, that they were trying to deem her a malingerer. She finally got three quarters, but she had to go, I would imagine she went through hell to get it. And um, I would imagine, you mentioned the word malingerer uh, when you're interviewing people and, and you know, uh, there's, I would imagine there's a, there's a level of that, the NYPD, that's where I learned that word, the <laughs> cops who are trying to get off. What, they were yelling the malingerer at you all day? No, 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 but I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> malingerer! <laughs> But there's a lot. I'm sure you have do you have to deal with cops that are like trying to get off the job and tell you that they can't deal with it anymore and they want their. Uh, I don't know if they have three quarters over there. Well, I think we should all get shirts that say "I'm not a malingerer" and just wear them <laughs> out in the community, just as a as a unified front. Um, Bill, back to what you were saying. Yeah, I see a lot of that PTSD, and I was having a conversation with my high school guidance counselor, like from 40 years ago, over the weekend, and he's a trauma counselor. And he just discovered his sister, unfortunately, had committed suicide and then had to go speak at a conference the next day. And, and one of the things that he said to me was police officers, firefighters, trauma counselors, what you do, psychologists, psychiatrists, you guys work in a closed society. And the idea of expressing PTSD or trauma is not really, it's, kind of, it's not so much it's frowned upon, but it's more like just suck it up and deal with it. It's right. your job. Do your job right? Like, don't, don't whine about it. This is what you signed up for. And so my short answer or comment to, you, to what you're saying is for me, I was consulting on a TV show and the writers, we were, they were actually in New York. It was the show, The Affair. And the writers were asking me, wow, you know, same question you just asked me, Mark, like, what do you do to deal with all of this trauma that you hear on a daily basis? And I said, I'm a, I'm a decent tennis player. I'm a really bad golfer. Uh, <laughs> I, I hit a punching bag as hard as I can at times. I get on a bike and cycle when I have some energy and I cry. <laughs> well, you're positive outlets for your anxiety. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and therapy. I mean, you know, you're gonna do. When you're crying, I'm gonna be like, hey, whoa, what are you doing? But, but, you raise, but you know what, Bill, you raise a really interesting point because most law enforcement agencies have a built-in psychological unit that will respond to officers who are in need. The problem, in my opinion, is that comes too late. It's always when they're in crisis. Right. And one of the things that we're trying to do right now, and we're gonna begin doing it in a couple weeks uh, in, uh, I think it's, it's north of Fresno, like in the Bakersfield area, is we're gonna to try to look at how we can help officers who are facing PTSD, you know, help them with their, the word is transference. How does that impact you when you go home? You know what? You know? I came up with a, an idea that I've been touting for, I haven't mentioned it in a while, but this is my idea. I think that every police officer coming out of the academy should be assigned um, a therapist. I couldn't and agree you more. You have to go the same way you have to go to your range twice a year, you have to go see your therapist. So this way you take away the stigmatism of, oh, you got, everybody's got to go. And when you go, if, there is, a, you know, you want to talk, you can talk. You're going to waste the hour if you want. But if you also want, you could have an extra four sessions if there's something you're going through. And knowing that everybody has to go 
you might actually use that time to talk some things through some uh, some things through and you might be able to uh you know get your extra four sessions or whatever it is um and uh if everybody has to go there's no stigmatism that's it i couldn't agree with you more because think about the fact that even if you don't establish credibility or rapport with your therapist because you don't want to be there by the fourth session you're like you know i'm not happy in my marriage or you know I'm, I, I don't know why if, if I'm going to do this long term or I didn't sign up to be a sheriff's deputy so I could just work in the jail for 20 years because I feel like I'm a prisoner myself. Right. You know, just to be able to process your thoughts and feelings and take away the stigma of therapy and make it more about the buzzword that we hear a lot, Bill and Mark, which is wellness. Let's just, let's just separate mental health for a second, shall we? And just use the word wellness. You know, people work out. Um, yeah, you know, they there you go. Of their bodies. They eat well. They get food, you know, sent to them, or they try not to eat junk food, or they cut down. You know, firefighters cut down on their cholesterol. But, but still, what are we doing to cut down in this, if you will, in this society that we work in? What are we doing to help ourselves with the trauma that we have to endure? And there's a book written by a colleague, Bezel Vanderkolk at Harvard, called "The Body Keeps Score." And it really is about how it really does take its toll on your health. So why not do what Mark is suggesting and get officers, police officers, firefighters, you know, et cetera, to be able to at least have an outlet. Because the other thing that that does, and I feel very passionate about this, is it shows the employee that someone cares about them. Right. Yeah. And that you're not just past the academy and good luck and we'll see you at your retirement. And by the way, don't mess up right. or, you know, do something put yourself in disrepute your family and the department but let's take a let's invest in your wellness and i think that that could do a lot to be able to prolong careers and to decrease depression and anxiety and traumatic stress because remember bill ptsd is actually a chronic anxiety disorder right, right. so a lot of those symptoms like the sleep disturbance the nightmares intrusive thoughts recollections flashbacks that's all permeating from anxiety it's like brewing a stew that is the perfect storm of disaster and right. then you take a sip well it was brewing you could have just taken it off the pot and let it cool down but instead you had to go and swallow it and now you own it well i think that's why suicide in law enforcement is epidemic and police photographers Right, who are inch away from the from the crime scene, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. But I don't think most police departments have good suicide programs or anti-suicide programs within the organization because on the New York City Police Department, if you ask for help, the first thing they do is take your guns from you. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, he shouldn't have his guns because he's he's got problems, you know. And well, there, there's been some organizations that have helped. There's an organization on the NYPD called PAPA, and it's a peer organization that helps to take control of the officer, and they'll sort of circumvent the department from taking his guns away, and they can get him treatment without having to have that stigma and putting him in, you know, especially for alcohol problems, they send you to what's known as the farm. And it's been called the farm because it's upstate. There's no cows there, there's nothing, but they call it the farm. Well, Mark, you know, I, I find that really interesting, too, because, you know, you're also talking about being able to to better understand what Bill is saying, right? 
uh, we're talking about police officers that have become overwhelmed with trauma and that get to a where you know they, they don't know how to deal with it and by the time they try to seek help it's too late yeah you know a lot of times what the job is not the problem you know it's it's one of the it's compounded by the fact that things aren't going well at home or you might have money problems uh, those are the things that uh, eat away at cops you know at least the cops that i know that committed suicide it usually had to do with money um and uh you know the job is you kind of sort of accept what comes with it you know but when you're getting beat up on both ends that's the problem right and imagine bill and mark if you're a returning veteran who became a police officer who is then placed, for example, I just worked on a high profile case of a police officer in a police local de police department here who uh, was a war veteran and saw a lot of combat. So he was, had PTSD to begin with, came over here, didn't really want to report it because he probably wouldn't have gotten the job. And instead of really looking in, at wellness, they put him in South Central <laughs> in another war zone. Yeah. And, and then he's dealing with all of the trauma or she is dealing with all of the trauma that comes with South Central. So now, uh, you know, at the end, 11th hour, this particular officer ends up in trouble. Uh, and, and we're trying to better understand why she or he got involved in this behavior, you know, based on the accumulated PTSD and trauma. Hey, are you surprised that how well the police officers can keep their composure? Uh, especially now during these trying times where you have people yelling at your face, blowing smoke up uh, underneath your mask, having their finger right in your face, cursing you out, wishing your kids dead. Are you surprised at how well the police officers around the country can keep their commo uh, composure? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think the police officers are doing their best to try to do what they're told and follow orders and, and protect and serve the community. And you know, it's not easy, I'm sure, when you have someone yelling at you and, you know, spitting on you or putting, as you say, Mark, their fingers in your face. I think, again, the larger question is, you know, how do we create and move forward in a society where that happens uh, less so and it doesn't become the norm? Because lately it's becoming the norm. And the reason for that uh, is important. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, it, there's, there's a lot of good cops out there, I believe. More good cops than bad cops, for sure. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you see what happened in Minnesota, it, it just, you know, it, it just casts a really negative blanket over policing right. and, you know, makes them a target, policing in general. Yeah, because when I see that, I, well, <laughs> I can't help thinking to myself, one day there's just going to be somebody who loses it. He's going to take his baton out, beat them, take a gun out, take five people out, boom, that's it. End the story. I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, somebody's going to freak out. Especially if she or he has PTSD. Yeah, like you've been standing there for six hours and people yelling at you, they're throwing stuff at you and, uh, you know, right in your face. You know, these people that do that kind of stuff, they're taking a lot for granted, man. You're, 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 you're pushing this guy's buttons and you don't know what the other person's been through. Right. You I know? think they should put the city council standing in the front line where the cops are supposed to be. <laughs> they should have all of them standing there and just see what they would do. And just get, let them get a taste 
of what the cops do. Well, one of the mayors uh, went out with, um, in, was it in Portland? He went out and he stood out there and he got hit. <laughs> he got hit you know, with a big ass. That was great. All that justice, you know? So let me ask let me ask you guys a quick question. I mean, as, as, as police officers, because I don't know what it feels like to be a police officer. I don't know what it feels like to go out and dedicate yourself to protect and serve. And so with everything that you're seeing with what's going on right now, and Bill, you forgive me for asking this question because I'm a guest and I'm not a host, but- That's okay, no. Okay. I'm just curious, like what, what do you see moving forward? Like what is our path forward and how do we move together where as a society and a community, we can feel that the police, you know, can be trusted to protect and serve and not inflict themselves on innocent members of the community. And at the same time, the police officers feel respected in doing their job and, and the community realizes that they, they swore an oath for a reason. And hopefully that's not to inflict themselves on innocent members of the community. Well, I think that this whole anti-police narrative is really very, very dangerous because 89, car, 89 police officers across the nation were killed in the line of duty last year. 15 black people were killed by police and 30 white people were killed by police. So something's wrong with those numbers and to blame the entire society's problems on the police is really misdirected. Really, it should be being blamed on politicians. They're the ones that are creating these shitty cities like Baltimore. They're the ones creating people living on the sidewalks in LA. They're the ones allowing 80 something people to get shot every weekend in Chicago, you know? So, but so to blame the police, and then they put the police out there in riots and tell them you can't do anything. Why don't they just put dummies out there and let them hit the dummies? You know what I mean? Because they're, they're not out there to do their job. These mayors are telling them to stand there like mannequins. You know, you really have to let the police do their job. And, you know, I talk to people, say, that are on the other side of the political fence than me. And they swear there's no violence at these demonstrations. I'm like, what are you watching that I'm not watching? Are you watching the same reports? Are you watching the same social media? Yeah, like in New York City, 300 police cars were, were, were burned. I mean, th there's some real evidence that there's violence. They burned 300 police cars. I don't have the statistics on how many cops got hurt, or especially even in Portland and all those other places. But no, they're not. The, the demonstrations are not peaceful. So I don't know how a lot of these politicians say, oh, I'm with the demonstrators. So I guess you are with anarchy and destruction. And how about people that own businesses that are to told the police aren't gonna protect you? I mean, I find that outrageous that the government can tell the citizenry, no, we're not gonna protect you. And at the same time, we wanna take your guns away too because we don't want you to protect yourself either. You know, I don't know, it's baffling to me and I, I really, it breaks my heart to see the cops in New York City, what they're going through right now. Because we, Mark and I, and a lot of people that came on the job when we did, we saw crime drop 70% in New York City over the last 30 years. They're losing it now in a couple of years. They're gonna lose, it's gonna become a shithole city, just like those other cities I mentioned. And New York City became the safest large city in the nation. It's going away, quickly. And it's, it's really disturbing to us. You know, Bill's the optimist of the show. <laughs> no, because look, I, it can it be taken back? Yeah, but you need the right people in specific positions. For example, the mayor. You can't have the, a jackass like this mayor. He's a moron. You know, he's reversing 30 years of crime drop in, in his tenure as mayor. 
And then there's like five or six people in line that are just like him, ready to take his job. So let's say, um, let's say you you have to go defend somebody right now. They're calling you in to talk to somebody, and their uh, excuse for, uh, I don't know, shooting at a cop or killing a cop is because they feared when they got pulled over that they were going to get killed, so they fired first. How do you even defend that? Because that's uh, that's a, that's an excuse that can be ingrained, that can be argued by a defense attorney. That, uh, you know, based on the what's going on right now and the history of what he's grown up with and mentioning all these different deaths and the cops killing people, how, 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 as is, you know, what do you do as a, with that? Yeah, I mean, I would say an unprovoked shooting is an unprovoked shooting. You know, I mean, wh what did the, the cop do to deserve to get shot and pull this guy over for breaking the law? I mean, the cop didn't deserve that. And so, you know, the way that way I would approach it is to just to try and understand and that sounds to me like a case of an individual who's looking for an excuse to inflict themselves on a on, on a good uh, cop who's trying to do her his job now i don't think i'd take that case well it's even the whole the whole thing the movement defund the police i mean i don't want to live in a neighborhood that defunds their police i don't i don't want to live in that neighborhood you know i really don't i don't want to see some violence interrupters with their msw showing up, you know, and so trying to break up a gunfight, you know? Yeah, well, and I, I think- It's a town near you, so. Yeah, I know what I was gonna say is I think that the issue is uh, how, how are policing resources being used? Can they best be used to protect society and also give police officers and departments the resources they need to do their job? And, right. and so I think that in this whole movement, um, that dialogue needs to be ongoing and we need to better understand because I don't think a lot of I think a lot of members of the community say you know we should defund the police but they don't understand what that means right. um, and, and let's talk about appropriate resources and what department needs departments need to do their job and let's also talk about how police budgets get overinflated for fancy buildings when maybe some of those funds could be better served uh, you know helping the community and, and reducing crime in communities where there's an investment in communities. So- You gotta come to New yeah. York and see uh, in some of, some of our fancy police buildings. Right? Yeah. I mean, LA, you wanna see, see rats this big? <laughs> you know what I used to do? When, before, before I went in to take my nap in our lounge, I used to, I, there was a baseball bat right before you went into the lounge. Now, mind you, this is like, uh, it's got a, a recliner right in the middle, there's a lunch table, and there's couches on the side. And there's a TV. You just take the bat and hit the wall, flick the lights on three times, and all you see the rats. They jump up on the pipes and they disappear. And then you go in and you take your nap. <laughs> That's where all the money in New York City is going to. Uh, to all yeah, fancy, yeah. Uh, the fancy well, things. Yeah. LA, the LAPD quarters, LAPD quarters in downtown look like a library. I mean, it looks like a museum. No, I heard Beverly Hills. Uh, I heard Beverly Hills Police Department is something else, right? Well, yeah, there's an in and out there too. You can like pull up, pay your ticket, you know, they'll feed you, they, and it's all linen. You know, they've got Lamborghinis waiting to take you. You know what it is, because here's my, you know, I, I've been talking about this lately, but uh, we'll, we'll close out on this is, uh, you know, my theory on privatizing policing and just like the Beverly Hills Police Department. And uh, if you can afford it, you're gonna wind up paying for it. And that's where we're going towards uh, because these cities, they get a budget. And they're, they're very heavy with uh, municipalities. And what they want to do is scale down on that to be able to give the money away so you vote for me again. Um, and part of that is like what we did. We downsized 
the the our, our jail here, the Rikers Island. Now we're downsizing on the police department, and we're going to make it a point that these people create uh, or hire their own security in their neighborhoods. New York is going to, my theory is, be broken up into zones, and there's going to be residential zones. There are going to be commercial zones, and uh, for those who wish to destroy, you can do it over here. <laughs> well. Well, those, you know, your, your private areas where people can afford to have their own security, that's what's going to be patrolling there. The NYPD, ironically, is going to be held off for low-income neighborhoods. That's what, that's the irony of it all. But, you know, after what happened here in New York City and what's going around the country, you know, uh, one of my running jokes is those two people that were on the, uh, on the, the uh, you know, in front of their house with the guns, the McCluskeys, you know, and, and they were like, and... I always tell people, and I'm going to ask you, because I hope you didn't watch the last episodes. What do you think the biggest problem of that situation was? The fence. The fence wasn't strong enough. <laughs> we got to build better fences. Invest in fences. Right. That's and what that's I'm telling our, our too. Well, we, we know the broken windows theory. So, yeah, let's invest in better fences for sure. That fence should have been, uh, I want, if I had money right now, your money right now. <laughs> you know what I do? Nothing. I would build a fence outside my house. I would call up and I'd find out, I'd Google who, who's building the fence for Trump around Mexico. And I want that company to come over and whatever they're building, I want it six feet higher, grease it up and electrocute it. Right. That's how it would protect your, that fortress you got out there in uh, right. San Bernardino, wherever the fuck you are. <laughs> you know, Nadim, one of the things is in New York City, we showed the whole country that we know how to reduce crime. If you let us do our job, we know how to do it. Did they maybe push it a little too far or, you know, make a, a whole, uh, make numbers and arrest numbers and arresting people. Maybe they went a little too far with that where people wanted to go the other way. But if you let it go the other way too much, then you're going to see shootings are up 24%. Oh, no, excuse me, murders are up 24%. Shootings are up like 150%. So there's a fine line and you have to let the police do their job. And when they come in and they don't want the police to do their job, that's what happens. You know? Yeah, you know what happens, right? They're going to be talking about defunding the police. Next thing you know, it's like, hey, you know what? How much do we really need this criminal psychologist anyway? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> How much is he really low in crime, you know? <laughs> Show me the numbers. <laughs> well, for, for the record, they haven't raised my rate in a decade, so I'm still I'm barely swimming, but it's all good. Well, you know what? I just want to thank you for coming on with us. I think you were a great guest. Uh, our audience learned a lot tonight. Um, do you have anything to plug? Is there anything that uh, you are you writing, working on a book, or some crazy person you want to promote? Are you selling a Porsche or a Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I just want to say thank you because uh, I have no friends. So now I feel like I have two more. And uh, Bill was kind enough to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I was like, wow, this social media thing is something else. Maybe I should uh, get on this a little more. So no, I'm very no, grateful. Team, to... I have found some of our best guests on LinkedIn. Well, look, you know, it's been a while since I, I used to do a lot of media with TV news and this is the first podcast I've ever done. And it's been a real pleasure to meet you both. And I hope the listeners enjoy this hour. And uh, I have not, I'm, I'm not a shameful self-promoter. I'll, I'll just say thank you. You got to write a book, man. You yeah. got to write a book. You know, the team, not only are you a, uh, obviously uh, a person that's 
done great things with their life, but you're a nice guy. You're a very likable guy. You know, yeah. that's this is a pleasure, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bill, any parting words? Nah, you know, I'm just, I'm glad Nadine speaks Spanish so we can interview all those pedophiles, you know? <laughs> Let me say one last thing, and that is, you know, on, on the sands of hesitation lie the bones of countless millions who at the dawn of victory waited and their waiting died. I think as long as we don't hesitate on the sands of hesitation and we continue to do our best and put our best foot forward to try to, to make sense of all the madness that's going on around us, then that's all. That's about all we can do. So Who was that you just quoted? Nadine? I have no idea. It was in the ah, digest. It was, was anonymous. I wish I had a photographic memory, so I, I can't even tell you. I'm sorry. I can't. I, it was Keats, Browning, Tennyson, Marlowe, all of the above. No idea. No idea. Uh, is there even a Reader's Digest anymore? <laughs> Wasn't that a good? Like, Thanks, I, Mark. No, Thanks. Just wait, is, is it online? What, what are they good doing? Question. It's a good. Maybe I'll one of your one, one of your listeners will know. Is there really a still a Reader's Digest out there? Please, <laughs> someone respond and put us out of our misery. <laughs> I wish I could quote someone like that. Pull it out like that. That was very impressive. I'll give you one quote, man. It's one of my favorite quotes. It was at the movie uh, at the end of the movie, uh, The Town, and it's I like it better the way I say it, but. Uh, for those criminals out there that are trying to get off, you know, and say, say you're crazy, I'm going to tell you right now, just because you're sorry for what you did, don't mean you don't have to pay for what you've done. <laughs> Amen. That's it, man. Payback's a bitch. All right. Thank you for joining us. Nadine. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank All the best to you. God bless. And when I come out to uh, LA, I'm going to look you up, man. I'll, I'll pick you up in my used Porsche. We're going to go crazy together. <laughs> All right. All right Take man. care. Bye-bye.